1: You know, so often we meet these Nobel Prize awards with I don't the best case, a shrug has been. maybe you know, I guess in the case of well, that's not true. we got Monroe. I thought with Dylan was interesting, I mm-hmm. would agree with me, but I haven't been deli- as delighted in a in a long time, maybe as as an adult. I mean, Morrison won in ninety three I was fifteen. I hadn't read any Morrison um, at that point. But for Glick, Louise Glick, apparently, is how you actually say it. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, she, her family says it. Um, this is where I'm, I was overeducated and underinformed, saying Glick, like a German, the, the, the proto-German speaker that I am, did the unusual thing for me of reminding myself about a writer I really liked, which is weird, because mm. I'm old now, and I can do <laughs> things like this, but... A service that the Nobel has never, or really any award has really done for me, frankly. It's like, oh, yeah. And then getting an excuse for the epi- for this episode to dive back in. Um, I- I'd say my reading of, of Glick has been uh, superficial is too strong, but kind of just picking and choosing, and, and we can get into this in a little bit later, but... I've got a lot of future reading ahead of me with Glick um, I'm really excited about. So I think for me, it was really a case of, oh, yeah, and oh, wow, and oh, yes, (laughs) about (laughs) um, how to be reminded and and presented in a different way um, about Glick. I think I said to you, I can't remember if it was on air or or off, that I thought you, in encountering Glick, would be very, very delighted Um, and find something there to nourish you. Did that turn out to be right?
0: It did. It really did. I had the lucky experience of, you know, like we know in the book world that when the Nobel gets announced and it's always a surprise and often it's an an unexpected person uh, that, Mm -hmm. you know, booksellers haven't had a chance to like stock up and I... Got off of. I think we were talking about it on the podcast last week, and I hung up from that call and immediately started trying to find a local <laughs> bookstore that had any e. Louise Glick in stock. Um, and I lucked out, and I think I snagged like the last existing copy of her collected poems from uh, 1962 to 2012. The Edna Barnes and Noble down the street, like went and got mm. it and came home, and I did a mix of flipping through and just sort of like, seeing what I had landed on, and then I read some pieces that you had mentioned as your favorites. And I'd asked our contributors about favorites and touched base with a few friends. And so that was sort of how I found my way in, you know, mm-hmm. cause there was no way I was going to catch up on a 60 year long career over the course of like four, no. <laughs> four days. Um, and I, I really was just sort of my jaw dropped. Um, I, I was just blown away, and I was like, Oh, well, I, I get it immediately why this person <laughs> won the Nobel Prize. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was kind of also surprised because it does seem so squarely in my wheelhouse of the kind of uh, writing that I like, and the kind of poetry that I like, and the subject matter that I'm interested in in life that um, she hadn't really made it to my radar or been recommended to me yet. So, yeah, I, it was spot on. Um, they, you knew I was gonna like it. I sat down on Saturday morning and just sort of had my heart ripped out of my chest a few times. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, I'm a little mad at myself for not thinking to recommend Glick to you beforehand. Though it, it, in all, you know, in thinking about our biographical experience of how we how we encounter writers and, you know, i will talk a little bit about how I am interested in Glick and why I came to Glick in a particular time and place. Mm-hmm. It was at a different time in my life, like a pre-book write time, you know, um... And we don't follow poetry closely here on this show, on the site writ large, and, and and myself personally. So I guess if you would have asked me the day before the Nobel was announced, was Louise Glick alive? I would have been like, no. <laughs> it feels to me like she's a like almost I like an I mean it's after and, and I didn't know the biography at all really. Um, I only knew the poetry and and only some of that. Like uh, if you would actually, ta- when was she alive? You could have. There's a certain Of course, it makes sense when you know more about her when she was working and is working. But you could have told me she died in 1974 Mm -hmm. and I would have believed you. So there's a certain, you know, it's related to confessional poetry and concrete poetry coming out of some of those Um, schools a little bit too, but also it has some modernity and other things that are really worth talking about as well. So I guess she was sort of out... I first encountered her in an anthology, which I guess tells you something, Mm because an an anthology is its own kind of like monument and monuments we associate with people who have passed on, but when I look at it again, it was at the end of the anthology, and it was only her early work, and I didn't know that um, when really encountering for the first time. So, delighted to find that she's a contemporary in a lot of ways. She's 77 years old. She's older, But, you know, she's been around and working. Um, Some of her most, I I guess, lauded books um, came out while I was a teenager in college, sort of an adult, right, a a reading adult, which is exciting um, to have someone that I know a little bit and have more... (laughs) To discover there. I think, you know, the, the easy, there's not really an easy comp for any poet, um, except that sometimes you want to make a poet. I, you know, <laughs> you're one of your favorite, one of our favorite poets is Mary Oliver. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they are connected in interesting yeah. ways. I think Glick is a lot different. In um, and, and not as popular as Mary Oliver has become insofar as a poet can be popular. And I think for reasons that I understand, I think Glick is a little edgier, more difficult, elliptical, you know, artistic, literary. I don't know where you want to go with this, yeah, but there's a sharper edge on Glick. Is that right? What's your experience in comparing those two together? It is,
0: and Mary Oliver was kind of the first person that I thought about when I got into uh, into this anthology that I or this really collected works that I have. And I was... I spent a lot of time in the Wild Iris collection, and we'll get into the details of that later, mm-hmm. but there is so much um, in her work concerned with the natural world, and some of it really resonated with that same vibe that you get from Mary Oliver, and that was what made me be like, how has no one told me to read Louise mm-hmm. Glick before? <laughs> like, like yeah. what's going on here? But um, Mary Oliver is on the record as having wanted to be accessible, and like she really believed that poetry should have should be something that anyone could feel like they could approach. It didn't need to be difficult or have that sharp edge to it. And Glick, um, I don't think stands fully opposed to that idea. No, like, this isn't no. the, mo- th- this isn't the most difficult or elliptical poetry that I've encountered. Like, and she's not doing like what Ann Carson is trying to do. Um, but it, it there is an edge and there's a like you have to take some beats to figure out what's going on uh, in some of mm-hmm. these and i read a piece uh, this weekend in my research about her um where she was responding to the nobel and was saying that she had always sort of been concerned that winning wide acclaim Would indicate a certain kind of accessibility or a certain kind of dilution of the work that she wasn't sure she wanted to have said about her. Like you both want that wide acclaim or that there was a tension in that for her of wanting the work to be recognized and appreciated, but not wanting to find out that her work had been diluted enough for like the masses to enjoy it which is such an It's like and, the,
1: old, it's the old groucho Marx. Yeah. So I don't want to be a member of any club that would have me like that that, that acceptance would mean that the edge is gone and, to some degree right
0: Yeah and I'm I, I think maybe the Nobel is fancy enough <laughs> that um, that it sure. that winning the Nobel doesn't necessarily indicate that you've been you know widely accepted and that now the you know, lowest common denominator of readers are going to be into you or whatever. <laughs> right. But right. it seems like she's she's going for something that makes you work a little bit. Um, and that does put her in a different, I think, just a different group of poets than like mm-hmm. what Mary Oliver had set out to do. And I think that makes them a really interesting, like, I have not done it yet, but I'm going to go Google because surely someone has written things, you know, comparing and contrasting yes. Mary Oliver and Louise Glick. And I think it makes them a really interesting set of writers to look at together.
1: Look, you're never gonna see a framed poster at Target of a Louise Glick quote. Like it's just never gonna happen. Like it, no, but I'm serious. Like yeah, if that's no. what she's worried about, that's there's none of that here. I mean, there's things that are revelatory and provocative and interesting. I'd say she's more challenging, uh-huh. not not in terms of difficulty than Mary Oliver, where Oliver tends to be more sort of affirming. Like, I think you feel better yeah. reading Mary Oliver, but I fear more stimulated reading Glick, to just give a, a very simple kind of uh, yeah, binary I, comparison. I
0: think that's totally true, that Mary Oliver is like, the world is full of wonder, and let's appreciate them together, and even looks at the dark and difficult sides of nature and of human nature, but you do end up feeling ultimately like it's all gonna be okay. And I don't think Louise Glick is sure that it's all gonna be okay. Mm -mm. (laughs) Like the as a perfect like serendipitous example, when I randomly flipped open my six hundred and fifty page volume of her, I landed on um, a poem called Mutable Earth from the collection called Vita Nova. And the first line I don't know that one. Okay. Well I didn't know it either, Jeff. The first line is Are you healed or do you only only think you're healed. I t- oh my God! <laughs> right? I told myself from nothing, nothing could be taken away. But can you love anyone yet? When I feel safe, I can love. But will you touch anyone? I told myself if I had nothing, the world couldn't touch me, and it keeps going. Mm. And like she ends with the absolute erodes the boundary, the wall around the self erodes. If I was waiting, I had been invaded by time. But do you think you're free? I think I recognize the patterns of my nature but do you think you're free? <laughs> it's like, well, welcome to my Saturday morning and my new existential crisis.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, let's, let's take our first sponsor break here. We should have done it before, and we'll do some biography because I think that, look, the, the fingerprints are all over every poet's poetry, right? Mm-hmm. But I think some biography will make this even more interesting as we go forward. All right, bio. Born April 22nd, 1943, New York City. Um she doesn't identify as a Jewish poet but she is using um the, the sort of the tradition of Jews a Jew you know her her mom is a Jew and her grandparents came from Hungary um i think some of the identity politics or really the maybe the stunning lack thereof in her writing is notable to talk about mm. on the whole um or at least the way it's in which it's addressed is is elliptical there um her mom was a homemaker her dad wanted to be a writer but you, Here's another thing to say about Louise Glick. She also has one of these biographies that was feels like it was central casting to be a poet, right? <laughs> uh-huh. We're like, so, okay. So, her she had an older sister who died while young, before Glick was born. And then, so, Glick's first collection of poetry is called Firstborn, right? So, it's about, I mean, that's it's almost, a cl- cliche is too strong. It's a personal trauma. But, like, this absence, this thing, you've got a writer, your frustrated parent. Um, there's some poetry about how her dad really, like... Um, I think, I think there's something like my mom wanted to float, and my, my, my dad was ankle weights on her. It. It's like, oh God, thanks a lot. That's great, awesome. Um, and then he, inv- he, along with his brother, invented the exacto knife. So, which for Glick. Your, for your father, who wanted to be a writer, who invented a precise cutting instrument, like it's just too much. Like I just don't know what, like I don't know to do with my body right, with this kind of stuff. Uh, yeah, Dwight Garner um, made
0: good use of that in one of the pieces I read. I'm this sure weekend. he did. Yeah, yeah, that's a
1: very Dwight Garner thing. Um, she struggled for a long time in her teenage years and adult years with, with anorexia, which made her formal education sort of piecemeal and desultory. Mm-hmm. It's not clear that she she graduated with high school sort of under duress. Um, she went to Sarah Lawrence College, but. And she then she took some um, classes at Columbian Poetry as kind of the non-traditional students um, path there on and off. Uh, she wrote her first work, you know, got some mention, then had six years of writer's block, wrote this other book, um, started teaching at Goddard College, met some people, had some breakthroughs, and then sort of over the course of, I think, um, Tides of Marshland, and then Uh, The Triumph of Achilles in 85, and then by the time of Wild Iris, um, she won the Pulitzer Prize in 93 and sort of became one of the most important living works. She was a U.S. Poet Laureate, 2003 to 2004, won the National—she's won everything Mm -hmm. you can win in American poetry. Um, There is no—outside of the Nobel, there is no Booker Prize of poetry, to my knowledge, which I'd never really thought about before, like a global— every year kind of a, award, which is maybe a blind spot that someone could um, could could jump in. I'd love to know who the Louise Glick of, say, Guatemala is or something right now. I'd be fascinated to see what's going on around the world. Um, I think those are maybe the salient details. The other one, sort of bridging off the poem that you pulled out, and it's no mistake, like the Bayesian prior is most of, the, <laughs> most of Glick's poems are about an analysis of the self of some kind. She, she considers her seven, and ongo- seven really intense years of psychotherapy mm. her education, which is fascinating. I think you and I have can a lot to maybe <laughs> think about about what that is and how it influenced what her poetry is, which is a mm. lot of I am looking at myself, looking at myself yeah. stuff, which is great, and I can't get enough of that meta-ness that goes into it. And one of the things you and I talked a bit about over time is our fascination with the idea of both online and off of how do you get better and can you get better at whatever it is just by wanting to get better? Or is it kind of um, just feathering the icing on the cake that is already baked? You can tell I've been watching Great British Baking <laughs> Show with that particular metaphor outside my normal parlance there. You know, the, um, those are advanced techniques. That is a, well, I mean, when you've watched 10 seasons, you got to learn. you got to pick up something. It's true. got to pick up something. So I think those pieces are all really interesting in terms of the work like what did did you do biography stuff what what else did what else i missed that you thought was interesting or among the things i've said what do you want to draw special attention to rebecca
0: you rang all the bells that i had pulled out Uh, i thought the exacto knife thing was super interesting and you know a a person who grows up to be a writer who had a parent who wanted to be a writer i feel like there's always something there like you're set up to be interesting in the same way that like someone who has two parents that are both therapists is bound to be a fascinating person
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: it feels like, oh, of course. Or that's. a
1: complete mess or both. I right, guess.
0: like I guess interesting, it's whether not. they're interesting in a messy way or not. Um, the I think the difficulties of her childhood being sort of so overt um, makes it really understandable how it, the work shows up to be so complicated. Like everyone's life has difficult, weird, challenging things in it. But parents who have lost a child is that that's a huge thing to have shape your Young life and your awareness of who you are. Um, and then certainly anorexia and that, like, th- that really, that time spent, like, so deeply analyzing and criticizing the self mm-hmm. um, that her then, com- I'm fascinated by her then being able to, you know, come through years of therapy and then translate that looking at the self and looking at herself looking at herself into Mm -hmm. into her work but i it did resonate certainly as i was moving through the poems like like none of this is light or warm like there are moments of light and moments of warmth but it's about um the gritty stuff of humanity Mm -hmm. i think yeah
1: um as we transition sort of themes technique and other things like that maybe one bridge of getting there is looking at her own avowed um, influences, mm-hmm. right? And again, not a surprise, I'm going to like Glick and you. and We're talking Emily Dickinson. Yep. We're talking Rainer Maria Wilka. Mm-hmm. We're talking Charles Oppen, of the, the concrete poets. Um, she studied under Stanley Kunitz, which was a name kind of forgotten now, but a big deal then. I think another, I'll expose one of my own biases as a Midwesterner. This, the, the sort of cadre cabal Going back to sort of conquered Massachusetts of New England poets, I've always bristled against. <laughs> right? I've thought, it seems it seems cloistered and intellectually sort of incestual in its own way. I just always found it kind of stultifying, which. I like Emily Dickinson, but she also found it soulifying. Yeah. So I maybe have more affinity with her in that particular way. So I would tend, I tend to gravitate poetically to the Whitmans, the Ginsbergs, you know, kind of the 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 exploding of the um, um, hermetically sealed. And it's not fair. I'm saying it's a bias. I'm not saying this is right. This is one of my mental models. I'm always trying to fight against. So one of the pleasures of Glick for me is she's also kind of fighting. Yeah, like she's in it, like she's in the garden, but she's like also oh, these, these flowers might be trying to kill me, um, at the same time, which is I think, for me allowed entree into a sympathy that I may have not had otherwise <laughs> with this. There, there is a school of New England poetry, even among poets. like, aren't the geese flying overhead great? And I'm like, okay, sure, you know, like, you know what I'm getting at. But mm-hmm. it's not that, and that's unfair. But I always have to overcome that, and I think one of my problems. With Glick, even before you know I, I had encountered it in a different kind of a way, would have been and, and it would have been like, okay, uh, poems about flowers, I know <laughs> flowers are wonderful, I get you know what I mean though like it's tough, it can be tough, yeah,
0: I think there's Actually, I think it's pretty reflective of the tension that exists in New Englanders relationships yes. with nature and with the seasons and with like being outside when it's largely uncomfortable <laughs> for, <laughs> for a huge chunk of the year. And then it makes the season where things are light and blossoming seem like you have to really appreciate it and treat it as if it's magical. Um, and she is there, you know, wrestling, as you were saying, with like, I'm in right. this garden and it's great, but also like, what are we doing here? And it's bringing bringing up existential terror. <laughs> um, I was thinking about this. I took this philosophy course in college that I didn't understand most of it until like a decade later um, that spent a ton of time talking about the difference between like the beautiful and the sublime. And I feel like I've landed
1: uh, in interesting. a place yeah. of
0: thinking about that where like Mary Oliver is getting at largely like the beautiful or the sense of awe that we feel in the face of nature, even in the face of... Yeah, dangerous parts of nature or the painful parts of human nature. And my experience with Glick felt much more akin to like the sublime or just um, that l- looking at it is scary in some ways. Um, yeah, there's something right. kind of, there's a terror at the heart of some of this that feels really, really mm. human and like right under the surface. Like you could, you could just touch it Um that sort of poking a bruise feeling. Um then, Yeah. Whew,
1: yeah, it's it's really fascinating to see um, in terms of the style of the poetry. We're going to spend the the last bit of the show looking at one poem in particular and sort of using it as a bridge to think about biography and styles and other things that goes on. This is not rhyming poetry. Mm-hmm. There's not much rhythm here. It also is in, it's in that um, what's that Ron it's sort of a Ron Swanson parody <laughs> part of like anyone can write poetry. Mm-hmm. You know, like oh look, it's. It doesn't have to rhyme. It doesn't need, like, what is the craft, right? If it's just a bunch of words in a row, okay, there's in jammin and 0 but that's you just end the sen- you end the line in the middle of the sentence and move on. Congratulations, you're a poet. I think there is some fair, I actually think there is some fairness to that kind of critique of like, okay, just because you ended, you, you broke the line in the middle of the sentence, congratulations. But it also is deceptive complicated and one of the um, essays I read a long time ago and I couldn't find a pr- I don't know what happened I think I had a print version of one of her essay collections but she ta- one she talks about the education of a poet and it's a line I saw actually repeated in some of the retrospective mm-hmm. work that came out more around the publication of the volume that you have in front of you um, a line she she says something to the effect of you know I was never one of those poets who was 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 awed by words like incarnadine right she's not the language play Mm -hmm. like reveling in language for its own sake is not something she does right this is simple language here i mean this is not elliot it's not even i don't even know so you can read it with a fifth or sixth grade well, maybe a little bit more, discriminate, immune, I'm not sure. But you're not going to be like, what does that word mean? Or what the hell is going on? You may wonder what it means, the whole thing, but on the level of phrase or line or adjective or noun, it's quote unquote accessible. But I think that is deceiving in a way I find really pleasurable too.
0: Yeah, I completely agree. The, the language doesn't like you don't open it up and think oh I'm going to have a hard time with this and the poems aren't arranged mm. in, like just visually on the page they're not in, arranged in a way that calls any attention to how they're yeah, arranged right. you know and she didn't decide not to capitalize letters you know there's no like performative use of mm. the form um and certainly there are you know real and interesting and artistic reasons to do those things but she's just not She's not interested in that and I appreciate something that looks like it's going to be straightforward and then makes you ask a lot of questions about it um which was kind of the experience that's what happened to me um flipping through these <laughs> and reading like you had said um you know read vespers and when I looked in the Index of my collection. There are like seven poems called Vespers, and I don't think I
1: knew that. See, yeah. I'm just see, I'm looking at anthology stuff. Yeah, so I, I, and didn't, then, I didn't even know that. Yeah,
0: there's like seven poems called Vespers. They're all from Wild Iris, and it's like you know, a couple of them are in a row, and then there's a poem called Daisies, and then there's like Night Lilies or something. You know, I could look and tell you for sure, but there's a Vesper mm-hmm. and a Vesper, and then several other things that are named after like parts of the natural world, and then a couple more Vespers, and those ones that are that come in between the vespers it took me a minute of reading them to realize like in the vespers and of course like we can talk about this when we get into our close read later but mm-hmm. a vespers is an evening prayer and it's what you're doing at the end of the day and um she's she's asking questions in the vesper poems and then the other ones are those elements of the natural world like responding to her. Yeah. And there's nothing that hangs a lantern on it. It ju- it's just like those landed differently and I had to sit with it and be like, "Oh right, that is what's happening." And then the earlier poems in that collection are called matins and the matin is the morning prayer and those are mm. also interspersed with responses from elements of Nature. And like maybe the Wild Iris collection has an introduction that says some of this stuff, but there was no I highly doubt. <laughs> yeah, there's like <laughs> there's there's no introduction in this like whole collected works. There's no like letter from her editor, there's no like big note from her about looking back on her career, which I think in itself is interesting that there's like, here is sixty years worth of a poet's work. Good luck to you, <laughs> you know. With, with
1: Yeah, that's tricky, too, for someone like Glick, especially, I'm, I'm sure all, maybe Dickinson, you could dive in, you know, it doesn't matter kind of what order, maybe in a biographical way. But one thing Glick does in multiple volumes, and I can't say I've, I've read them all, so some of this may, may be only partially true. She likes to inhabit a bunch of different points of view, and the collection I know as a collection the best is the Triumph of Achilles one, where she's inhabiting these mythological figures Mm -hmm. and writing from her point of view through their lens about the various issues that they represent, what their stories are, and what the Louise Glick figure sees if looking through the eyes of Circe or looking through the eyes of Patroclus or looking through the eyes of Achilles himself. My first real outside of having to read some Glick as a part of an anthology, as a part of a survey course, where I came to on my own turns is I was trying to figure out how to t- make sense of the Iliad for myself. And oh. then when I was trying to teach it, how to make sense of the Iliad for students, right? Like h- how do I find something here? Um, that isn't just here's a poem that was written twenty five hundred years ago about things you don't care about and <laughs> places that may not have exist in a mythological and historical structure that has largely been commodified to the point of not understanding so what what's the nut of what's the nut of the thing here that I can jump down to in the triumph of the Achilles Achilles the inversion the poet's inversion is so beautiful because Achilles is someone we think of immortal and dying as like kind of a fall right well what what does the triumph of Achilles really mean well. For Glick, it's that he embraced mortality. He didn't run from it. He wasn't scared of it, but ultimately lived the life and cared about the thing he was going to care about, knowing full well that it was going to end in his death and somehow being okay with that. And, you know, that's one of the great questions we have of all human life is how do you come to terms, if you can, Mm. with the fact that you are going to die? And Achilles didn't have to die. But he chose the thing he chose, even with the, the the amazing price he was going to have to pay to um, to to believe it or, or to to realize it. Now we all don't get Achilles' choice, um, but for someone like Glick, who when she you know she she says in some of her autobiographical stuff, like when she was most sick with anorexia she realized that she could very much die, and she really didn't want to. So this is not death poetry, I guess, is one thing to think about Glick, too. This is not sort of a, uh, you know, a a thanatopsian um, fascination, you know, lauding. It is really more of how to be in the world when you know... What comes after the Vesper prayer, right, of your own life? You know what's going to happen and there's no avoiding it. How do you come to terms and live with it? You know, famously, that's Freudian, right? Like, we're all going to die and that's all we're all doing the stuff to get out of the fact that we're going to die. But are there alternatives to denial, rejection, uh, obliviousness, or delusion? You know, how can you be illuminated, (laughs) right, about your own position in the world and its unavoidable costs, but then to either embrace those or put them in your hip pocket and carry them with you and still do the thing, right? How is that possible? Can it be possible? And I think one thing most people who wrestle with this with anything like success find is there is no promised land at which point you have figured it out and you are fine. It is a constant mm-hmm. writing of poetry, It is a constant of volunteer, It is a constant of whatever the constant is, the The solution is in the doing. Um, and I think that becomes clear when you look at like these long stretches of writer's block that Glick has had, how she talks about her own writing, what the function of the writing is for her own life. And I think maybe part, we could connect it back to that desire to not be Commodified or "quote unquote" popular, because I think the idea that she is essentially wrestling with can never be popular in that kind of way, because it's too uncomfortable, yeah. right? So if if it becomes accepted, that means she'll have missed the mark, because by its nature, it has to be discomforting uh, uh, in a real way. So there we go. That's <laughs> that's kind of the that's where I'm going with the what's at the root of the root thing. Mm-hmm. Now, this idea about. Um, writing about the self and not being subjective is really interesting from a psychotherapy kind of way. The ability to move outside of yourself or into, into other points of view to examine, right? The idea that if you get outside of yourself and look at yourself from a different angle, you may learn something that you didn't, right? Well, then if you extract that, then, well, what if I think about the world as if it's an iris or a goose, um, to use my own uh, cliche <laughs> about it, or Circe or my dad, or my sister, who, was, who died as a, as a very young person, or as Drowned Children, one of the more controversial um, short poetic sequence called The Drowned Children, too, as well. I think that multi-perspectiveness is a way of using small subjectivities to try to find something like an objectivity, you know, not, not the objectivity, but a kind of aggregate sensibility um, that's really interesting, too. Uh, let's do another break, and then um, we maybe we maybe we ready to get into the poem. Anything else from a first reader's point of view, Rebecca, that you notice? Questions, things that rubbed you the right way, the wrong way, or Ooh. can you say anything more about your experience of of thumbing through the glick before we um, narrow the attention at all?
0: Man, I just really wish that I had encountered her earlier but i also think that this was a perfect kind of experience to come to a poet not knowing anything you know i like to go yeah. and, I like to go into a book cold and i think going into a poet cold and having to do for me this felt like the right amount of work or it was like the right amount of Mm. difficult like when a poet or a writer trusts the reader to figure out what they're doing um and it's there's not a lantern hung on it there's not an introduction that tells you hey this is how this thing is set up um there's a a challenge there but It's done. I think she's so good at what she did that you can get there. You know, like it's Mm -hmm. not intentionally obscure. Um, It's not let me make you work just for the sake of making you work. And for that, I'm, you know, I'm really grateful. There are poets, especially that I've thought like, well, if I ever really wanted to get into this poet, I would want to like do it in the context of a class, or I even feel that way about like going back to Faulkner, you know, like I would want to mm-hmm. do this with somebody who really knows what's happening here and can guide me through it so that I can appreciate the whole thing. And despite Glick not wanting to like be popular or be accessible, I think that for like a thoughtful reader who will spend the time and it's worth of the time, you can get a lot out of it without a guide. Um, and there's something lovely. And I think that should be celebrated about that.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah.
0: I didn't get far enough in to find anything that uh, that rubbed me the wrong way.
1: I really like that idea of it being a bit of a stretch, but not something you need a guide necessarily to deal with this stretch. You know, it's like... There are hikes here in Oregon that are very, very popular, and they're beautiful in their own way. But they're not much of a stretch. Then there also you can go backpacking in the woods for 18 right. days, you know, something like that with guides. <laughs> but then there are these others. The middle ground between those two things are things that might you have to drive a little bit farther. You got to do a little more research about where to go. The, the hikes are going to be longer. They're going to be around amenities, and it's more of a it's more of an adventure, I guess. It's it's not dangerous, and you, you but it's an adventure. You can strike out on your own with. And I think that is, that describes in a lot of ways one of the great pleasures of Glick, is mm-hmm. this is an adventure you can strike out on your own with. You're not going to read three pages and be like, I got this figured out, but you're also not going to hit a wall and be like, oh my God, I need, you know, crampons and carabiners <laughs> and the whole thing <laughs> right. um, to get up this particular mountain. Would you, this is, so what we're going to talk about for the rest of the show, mm-hmm. or, or at least as long as we'd like here is um, this poem, Vespers, as you said, uh, you, you DM'd me, is like, which Vespers? I said, the one with the tomato plants. <laughs> so it's the one with the tomato plants from the 1992 collection Wild Iris, which did go on to win the Pulitzer Prize for Poetry. Rebecca, would you mind reading the poem? You're such a beautiful sure, reader. that thank you. Um, I think that's probably best.
0: It is, yes. And if you, like me, have the collection of Louise Glick, 1962 to 2012, this is the Vespers on page 279.
1: Oh, and there'll be a link in the show notes because it's also on poetrypoets.org. Uh, so it's okay. also available there. You can find it.
0: In your extended absence, you permit me use of earth, anticipating some return on investment. I must report failure in my assignment, principally regarding the tomato plants. I think I should not be encouraged to grow tomatoes, or if I am, you should withhold the heavy rains, the cold nights that come so often here while other regions get 12 weeks of summer. All this belongs to you, on the other hand, I planted the seeds, I watched the first shoots like wings tearing the soil, and it was my heart broken by the blight, the black spot so quickly multiplying in the rose. I doubt you have a heart in our understanding of that term. You who do not discriminate between the dead and the living, who are, in consequence, immune to foreshadowing. You may not know how much terror we bear, the spotted leaf, the red leaves of the maple falling even in August in early darkness. I am responsible for these vines.
1: Well, I don't know. I could do What do we do in a Socratic way? How do you want to go about doing this? Did you like this poem? Or were you surprised that this is the one that I was like, let's do this one? Or what do you think about this
0: poem? Well, I'll, now that I'll, I know okay. that there are like seven Vespers, it's not my favorite of the vespers.
1: <laughs> okay. Fair, uh, fair, fair. But, fair, but fair, I d- okay. I did,
0: I did like it. And it grew on me. Actually, I really liked it from the very beginning. I loved. I must report mm-hmm. my failure in my assignment, principally regarding the tomato plant.
1: <laughs> it's a little bit funny, which is a little unusual for Glick. I mean, this is as like this is as broad as her humor gets, right? It's a, it's irony because right. This is Vesper, so it's a prayer, right? Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, which we'll come back to at the end of the poem. But a prayer to whom? In your extended absence, you permit me use of earth, anticipating summer. This is Genesis, shit, right? This yeah. is I grant thee dominion over the earth. And her little earth is tomato plants, which is an interesting choice of the garden because this collection is wild irises and tomatoes we don't think of as a flower, but they are, of course. Mm -hmm. The fruit of the tomato flower is the tomato, but this is not about tomatoes, and this is also not about flowers. This is about the plants themselves. And how she's what this is? She's having trouble with her damn garden. Yeah, she can't yeah. grow tomatoes here, Rebecca. Right? That's what's happening. Right,
0: and she's in Vermont, presumably. Like there that, you go. So right. it, it's it gets cold there, and sp- like spring comes late and summer doesn't last long. Um, I right. think it starts off so interestingly, like in your extended absence. So yeah. we're in a prayer, um, presumably to a god of some kind or nature, Mother Nature, perhaps. I don't know, um, mm-hmm. but. Th- that entity is gone. You know, it's not like, uh, she's not in the garden communing with nature or communing mm-hmm. with God. This isn't growing tomatoes as spiritual practice, you know? Um, no,
1: it's just, you're anticipating, I mean, it's some return on investment. It's transactional, right? Yeah. Like go forth and multiply is you should do more with this crap that I'm leaving you with, or sort of, you know, in the, in the garden of eating sort of situation. Right. Yeah,
0: there's a real like sense of duty here. Like I'm growing these tomatoes, and I have to come back and tell you like it's not going well, (laughs) right?
1: And 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 so that's funny. It's funny, but it's also sad, right? I was, we were given dominion over the earth. God gave us dominion over the earth to just do whatever, and I can't even grow a fucking tomato plant, (laughs) right? There's a certain desperation. I think that that humor mocks that I I find so pleasurable (laughs) and relatable as someone who doesn't have a great green thumb either.
0: Yeah, and you know, she says it was my heart broken by the blight. And then later on, near the end, you may not know how much terror we bear, the spotted leaf, mm-hmm. the red leaves of the maple falling even in darkness in or even in August in early darkness. And so it's not just like, I can't make these goddamn tomatoes grow, but like everything about being outside here is mm-hmm. is hard and I can't make the tomatoes grow and summer is short and the leaves are turning even though it, the summer's not even over yet and darkness is coming yeah. and... Right. You know, it's like darkness is coming and all is lost, and I was responsible for these vibes. (laughs)
1: Right. <laughs> and so, so going back to what you do, even, even if you know darkness is coming, so one of the great questions, right, um, my great uh, poetry professor, Marosos Blunt, rest in peace, died last year, said, when in doubt, assume the poem is about poetry, mm-hmm. okay? That's not a, not a horrible way to get started, especially of poets of a certain ilk, sort of the, the modern poets, the classic poets generally wasn't about poetry, and I mean modern sort of Keats and Ford, let's say. So if the tomato plant is poetry itself— and we know a little bit about Glick's background. It makes sense. She, she can't grow tomatoes the way she wants to because. So the because is interesting. Because of why? Well, is it because of where she is or is it because of what she's trying to grow? Things grow in Vermont. Mm-hmm. But tomatoes are not the best choice. Right. The other regions to get 12 weeks of summer, tomatoes come from Italy. They come from the Mediterranean. Of course, tomatoes grow there. We have to build greenhouses in most places of the non um, sort of sem- subtrop or semi-tropical Mexico, California or Florida. So we're doing something unnatural, right, to grow tomato plants in these kinds of environments. Now, why do we do that? Why do we grow tomato plants in these kinds of environments? That's the question. That's the kind of question I ask my students. I don't have a good answer
0: to keep us from thinking about death.
1: (laughs) Well, but why not just be happy with the apples? Right. Or why not be happy with the potatoes?
0: Yeah. And, and then she holds, I don't know, this God that she's speaking to responsible for making it go well for her. Also, like, Yes. I, th- I think I should not be encouraged to grow tomatoes. Or if I am, you should withhold the heavy rains, the cold nights that come so often. Like at least try to make no. it easy on me. And I think there's something there about like I'm just doing this human toil thing, and you're not mm-hmm. helping me out at all. Feel that passive voice.
1: I think I should not be encouraged to grow tomatoes is interesting because passive voice as always does hides the actor of the who is doing the encouraging here. Mm-hmm. Is she implying that? this you is encouraging here? Is she encouraged from her own self? I think it's, I, I, my reading would be, we grow tomato plants because that's something you're, you think you're supposed to grow in gardens. Like it's sort of a, a ready-made answer to, what am I supposed to do with my garden? What am I supposed to do with my poetry? What am I supposed to do with my life? Well, tomato plants is something people grow in their gardens. Maybe I'll try that. Even if you or the place you are live in is totally unfit for growing that thing, we will still do that thing that we think we should do without looking at it with any kind of self-awareness like do i care about growing things at all and if i do what is it that i care about is it i care that i can grow a tomato is it or do i care that i can grow something that lives that survives that gives nourishment that gives you know that bears fruit Mm -hmm. like literally and figuratively bear fruit which i think is really great here right because tomato plants are Is that probably the the first thing you think of? If someone has a garden, what's your draft board of what they're going to have in their garden when it comes to edibles? Probably tomatoes number one, Mm -hmm. I would say, probably. I think so. (laughs) Which I don't know. Maybe there's probably other things you should grow in Vermont in the summer. You've got friends in Vermont. Ask them what, what thrives in that. Uh, I mean, what your Louise Glick been, have been growing in Vermont gardens in the summer of nineteen ninety.
0: Ironically, my Vermont friend just spent like an entire weekend canning the explosive amount of tomatoes that came from Vermont. Yeah, right. <laughs> so there, was yeah. there was some success. There was some success there. But yeah, I think what, what you're saying about like, we're just, we do these things because we think this is what I'm supposed to do. And as you were talking mm-hmm. about that, I was having this sort of image of like imagining louise glick like in her therapist's office and a therapist being like Super growing? Mm-hmm. you're good she and she's like these tomatoes <laughs> and the therapist, <laughs> and the therapist right. is just like how does that make you feel and yeah you no know, i've had some therapy this is how it goes and she's like i'm trying and like it keeps getting cold and it's rainy and there's leaves turning already and At some point, the therapist is going to be like, well, why do you care about these tomatoes so much? Mm. And that why do you care about this? Why are you doing the work that you're doing or why are you doing whatever it is in your life? Often it's mindless stuff that we're doing, Um, that there's always a why behind it. And knowing that she had spent so much time in psychotherapy and knowing that like meta level that shows up in the poetry, too, I think that's really It's really interesting that there's like, why is this a prayer when it's so angry? Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, Why, why are we invested in this? thing that she's doing this growing the tomatoes why does she care about growing the tomatoes there's all this stuff about like being in the gardens and looking at the daisies and like but none of it it doesn't seem like it's nourishing to her this is not Mary Oliver you know like wandering the field and that's how she spent her wild and precious life you know this is a like Mm -hmm. there's real pain here and I think she's trying to untangle what that is um interestingly, yeah. a few poems later, early darkness responds. So.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's good. I like that, right? It's that time of year where the early darkness, especially here in Portland, where it's, you know, it's, it's creeping up on us, too. Uh, close Reading Tricks 101, let's do a couple of them. One is look at right in the middle of the poet the poem, and the other one is, where do you get a turn of some kind? Where do you get a, a shift? And both of these nicely happened right after this. While other regions get 12 weeks of summer, she says, all this belongs to you. So all this meaning the 12 weeks of summer, other people get the cold nights, the heavy rains that mm-hmm. happen. That's all your sh-. You did all that. And then there's a colon and a turned. On the other hand, I planted the seeds. So it means I chose to do anything at all, right? I could have just mm-hmm. enjoyed the rains or whatever. And I planted the seeds for tomato plants. I could have chosen other things. And then I did other things. I watched the first shoots like wings tearing the soil. At first blush it feels like well that's just what poets do they describe stuff happening in fancy language but i think it's a little more than that there because she could have planted the seeds but she chose to watch the mm-hmm. shoots come through she chose to give them identity outside of being plants by having wings right tearing the soil having an action of like be- struggling mm-hmm. she's now endowing those damn little tiny pieces of green tomato plants with something like subjectivity. These are things that I care about. So not only has she planted the cheese, but she's chosen to care about what happens to them, which is sort of the second arrow here, right? Of choosing something that maybe shouldn't have been grown here, but then investing in care, not investing whether or not they work, but that they're not working. isn't The pain isn't just that they didn't work, but that something alive has been killed mm-hmm. or you haven't nurtured it. So you weren't sufficient to nurture this thing. That should be so simple. It's a tomato plant. They grow everywhere. And I have this little baby tomato and I killed it. Right. Or I, at least I couldn't do And, and the next plant, is, and my, it was my, it was my heart mm-hmm. broken by the blight. She says earlier, you don't have a heart. Like we would understand what a heart looks like that black spot. So quickly multiplying. And so you see one and then all of a sudden it starts infecting, the other things and the whole, I don't know enough about, really, I don't know enough about anything, but to me, like, is this a common situation in certain climates? Is the black spot determinative? Does it mean for sure you're, not only will you not get tomatoes, but that your plant might die? Or is it, or is it like getting, or or, this, or, or is it more like, um, oh, well, there's there's something on your CT scan? Mm. You know, it's kind of, is it one of those? Or is it you have stage four glioblastoma? I don't actually know, but I, I think it it could be either and both of them are interesting in this one time now we get another turn i doubt you have a heart in our understanding of that term you do not you who do not discriminate between the dead and the living who are in consequence immune to foreshadowing meaning if you are omniscient you know what's going to happen you know you knew what did you knew what's going to happen there's a simultaneity of omniscience that she's implying here that means causality and story sequence doesn't matter. So you already know what's going to happen because it's already happened in your mind. So what you don't get is dread, right? I think that's the that thing at the end here is dread, mm-hmm. right? And dread of, I mean, can you have a sense of what the dread she's so, how much terror we bear in the spotted leaf? Okay, that's that's more disease, right? But then we turn again to the red leaves of the maple falling even in August, which is typically like leaf peeping, you're going to drive, like this is good. Red leaves and in, 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 falling is... New England poetry cliche embroidered pillow one oh one. So what's what's going on here?
0: I think red leaves of maple falling even in August. That like that that there, even is important. That it's yeah. it's happening soon. It's happening early. You know mm-hmm. that you're you're ready for fall in like September October. And if the red leaves are showing up even in August, like we don't even get to enjoy summer yeah, fully
1: right, because
0: right. the. Indicators and reminders that summer is going to end are already appearing and there's dread of that of the like of the season of darkness. I do think there's dread here of I am responsible for these vines Mm -hmm. of what comes after what comes after this thing that doesn't have a heart when When it yeah. knows that she couldn't grow the tomatoes, you know, is there sort mm-hmm. of like a kind of an existential dread or judgment? Um And I do think a lot of it really is like I was joking about like we do these things because it keeps us from thinking about death. but like yeah, but right. I do think that there's a a good dose of um trying not to think about the darkness in Glick. And a lot yeah. of it is her sort of looking out of the corner of her eye at these really dark, painful things that, we have to look at if we are to do the work if we are to get better in some way and certainly someone who spent 7 years in psychotherapy is interested and concerned with that and then someone who spent 60 years of their life writing poetry is interested and concerned with, <laughs> right. with understanding yeah. the human condition in some way and a, a lot of it is how do we make sense of the of all of this we mm. we're here we have to do things for these you know limited years that we're here and then what does it all mean in the end mm. and for her you know it it means I couldn't even grow the tomatoes yeah. and fall I couldn't even grow
1: them. Not only that, that this last mm-hmm. phrase, this last independent clause, I am responsible for these by, and that responsibility mm-hmm. is multifold, right? One is I'm responsible for them. I'm the only one that's going to take care of them, but also I, I brought them in existence in the first place. So in that way, her position and this use position become more aligned, right? She is the God of these tomatoes, right? She chose, mm-hmm. To bring them into existence in this place in this time, so much in, much like she's complaining to her God, you can imagine. I don't know if there's a poem from the tomatoes' point of view, uh, you know, sort of to the gardener saying, "Why are you? Why are you trying to grow me in ba in Vermont?" <laughs> I'm not ever. Why are you doing this? Why,
0: why, (laughs) why why
1: bring me forth into the world to get the spotted leaf? Yeah,
0: it's so. It was really interesting reading all of the Vespers poems and looking at her turning this idea of an evening prayer onto its head, and that these are not words of devotion they're really words of like uh, questioning the existence of something (laughs) that's divine questioning the existence of meaning or a point to it all um really highlighting the hardships of life and the not cruelties of nature but just the ways that nature is indifferent to us um the the vesper before this one um i think it's relevant starts off once i believed in you i planted a fig tree here in vermont country of no summer It was a test. If the tree lived, it would mean you existed. By this logic, you do not exist.
1: (laughs) If you're a witch, you drown.
0: (laughs) Is she made of wood? No, there's a certain, there's
1: certain a circularity to that kind of a logic, Like that's a very, that's a very good representation of like a child's logic Mm -hmm. or like a child's understanding of divinity. Right. If, if a divinity exists and it is good, ergo, bad things happening are contra evidence. Right. to the thing existing itself and you know the thing that in reading this several times and trying to put on my close readers hat which I enjoy, I enjoy this process so much because for me it opens up possibility I'm not trying to get to a right. there's no right answer to poetry there's no like yeah you got it and there's a hundred percent as much as your um, English 101 professor would would say otherwise you know what is it that sticks with you the thing that that comes to me is it's the like you kind of intimated before it's the earliness of the darkness Mm -hmm. rather than the darkness that seems troubling would she actually feel better if the darkness came on schedule or is it not an excuse like i think about this a lot like would i feel better about my mortality if i knew that i was going to die on on, on the actuarial table Mm -hmm. right like i'm gonna be 87 and a half right if i knew that would would that help or would it just would i just think it would help or I, I would at least get to 74 and after. Like, d- at least no early darkness. Darkness can come, you know, around dusk when it should. Would that make me feel better? I don't think so. Like, it's not the earliness of the darkness here. But she's almost setting her, herself up to, by planting tomatoes in Vermont, knowing the darkness comes early, knowing the vicissitudes of weather and how unhospital they are to tomato plants, almost setting herself up to experience the earliness in a different kind, to to exaggerate the earliness, mm-hmm. and 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 I think in a way exaggerating the earliness is a way of trying to glance off the side of the regular darkness, almost <laughs> like I'm going to be mad about the early darkness, so I don't have to worry about that. The fact that darkness is coming, no matter what, even if it's not early, it's still coming. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure. I think about that now. Like, would she feel better if she made the tomato plants blossomed and bore fruit, and she got to can a whole bunch of them? And the darkness still fell. Probably not, right? Yeah. Probably not. No,
0: because you still have the darkness. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. Or
1: or it, well or maybe maybe I'm wrong. Maybe you, you at least have done the thing, right?
0: Maybe I don't know yeah do you want to hear the early darkness response
1: yeah let's hear it i I don't know this poem at all it'd be fascinating so this
0: is page 287 in the big collection and i think this is darkness you know speaking back to her um how can you say earth should give me joy each thing born is my burden i cannot succeed with all of you and you would like to dictate to me you would like to tell me who among you is most valuable who most resembles me And you hold up as an example the pure life, the detachment you struggle to achieve. How can you understand me when you cannot understand yourselves? Your memory is not powerful enough. It will not reach back far enough. Never forget you are my children. You are not suffering because you touched each other, but because you were born, because you required life separate from me. Mm. And there's something like Buddhist in there, you know, that... You hold up yeah. as an example the pure life, the detachment you're struggling to achieve. Your suffering is because you needed to be separate from the source, like separate from the, the place you came from.
1: Yeah, that you were born, right? Yeah. You know, it's like Johnny Ringo. Uh, what is what, that great hole in the middle of them?
0: Mm-hmm. Where did it come
1: from? From being born. Interesting, there too, that the darkness in the soil sort of saying, what you put in me is your responsibility mm-hmm. i I'm not yeah. blanketly obligated or able to sustain all of your dumbass choices <laughs> right mm-hmm. you know you 've got to figure out your own stuff i'll do what I can, but I can only do what i can yeah that's that's amazing to think of. that holistically like, in that regard, my favorite poem of all time my favorite poet of all time is Walt Whitman mm-hmm. and my favorite poem of all time is song of myself, where he tries to you know, get his arms around creation, right? The There's a similar kind of, like, structural project here of, like, inhabiting the world, but whereas Whitman tries to sort of, I don't know, like, sub, like eat the whole, like, put the whole thing into his body and become, <laughs> uh-huh. like, look for me in your book, like, I'm everywhere all the time, I'm even you reading this poem 200 years from now. Gluck's saying... She's not everything, and she knows she's not everything. But still, trying a multi-perspective worldview, you know, sort of an aggregate, an aggregation of limitation is still bigger than the perspective of one. Mm-hmm. Um, and is that perspective? And then the trick is: is that perspective? Is that the tomato? Right? Is that the tomato you're trying to grow? Is that the thing you're trying to do? Like, what are you trying to do with that multiple perspective? And frankly, I think it is, you know. Being psychoanalyzed by the ground, by the birds in the air to some degree is like seeing, seeing how your position is seen differently through things that don't even have eyes to see. And can you infuse them with your own kind of genius to do some different kind of work that hasn't been done before it's it's amazing yeah there's
0: some real it's amazing stuff i think attempting to understand her the whole of herself is greater than the sum of its parts um Mm -hmm. that's happening and the whole of her experience in the world as greater than the sum of its parts by like here's my failure to grow tomatoes and it's about to get dark real early and I'm sad Mm -hmm. but what would the darkness say to me about this and there's one later um, from the perspective of the harvest and the harvest is saying Mm. to them like yes this is really hard but it is at once the gift and the torment and Mm. I was like man if I ever if I needed like another poetry line tattoo I think I might just get (laughs) 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 at once the gift and the torment or like remind yourself of this once a day whatever the thing is that day (laughs) You know, that, that's hard. It's at once the gift and the torment. Like, she's so in this work of trying to understand her, I think, subjective experience and then step back and ask, what would it look like from a different angle? And instead of taking the position of other people in her life or just trying on, you know, a variety of philosophies, she's taken here these lenses of um, what is it like from... The tomatoes' perspective. What is it like from the lily's yeah. perspective? What is what would the harvest say? There's one from the sunset. My tenderness mm. should be apparent to you in the breeze of the summer evening, and in the words that mm. become your own response. think mm. like, just,
1: whew. yeah. That 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 torment and the gift is, I think, a useful coda, but also an anthem of a lot of it, which is the thing is the thing, and it it's. You know, it's a double-edged <laughs> thing. Like the x knife, it both cuts and cuts. It cuts. <laughs> and you either use it to cut productively, but you also got to watch out for knowing that it, it cuts enough to kill. And wielding it responsibly, properly, mindfully, you can get through mostly, you know, you can do things that you couldn't have done otherwise um, and maybe live something like a more fuller, existence like there's a way in which physical survival of the tomatoes is really in in plants and nature what she's trying to figure out is how can i survive philosophically like my body's going to do what it's going to do right but how can my consciousness my soul my intellect my morality how can it survive even within what i know about myself Mm -hmm. and so this tension between the enduring things and the temporal things like, my, my darkness is going to come early or not. How can I... What tomato am I going to grow? What decisions am I going to make? How am I going to understand where I am, who I am in that moment, right? And not look too much to the foreshadowing, mm-hmm. not too much look to the coming of the dawn or the sunset or the falling of the maple leaves. And, you know, it's kind of... There's a little hint at the end of here about the maple, right? Well, in when you the time to harvest maple syrup is in the winter. So if you think of things as being of their own time and being in the right place and being you know, more in tune with who you are and where you are and what you are, there are other fruits to harvest, <laughs> right? If you look around yeah, I, in a different kind of a way.
0: I, I'm glad that you mentioned Rilke as one of her influences because there is something very familiar about that yeah. perspective to me in her living the and question exactly, right isn't it yeah. the real good yeah. try to love the questions like because even if you could get the answers you wouldn't understand them
1: <laughs> yeah, you wouldn't understand them right and we sort of understand this too because she says i doubt you have a heart in our understanding of that term mm-hmm. she has she gets at what she gets that there's known unknowns right and then there's unknown unknowns but one known unknown is what is the nature of the quote-unquote heart of divinity and that is the soul, the thing about how they care, how this thing cares about this thing that they have created. Just just like the tomato doesn't understand what the gardener wants from them. And if they did, they wouldn't understand it because the tomato has no conception of its own eating, right? It just (laughs) just can't (laughs) in any particular way. So in that regard, there's a nice circularity of it. I could do this all day, Rebecca. Thank you for humoring me. I enjoy this a great deal.
0: Thank you for the introduction to Louise Glick. I'm so glad she's in my life now.
1: Uh, show notes bookriot.com slash listen. We'll put a we'll put a link into Vespers there. There's a really good piece. It's paywalled, unfortunately, that um, was in the New Yorker by by Dan Jason um, on the occasion of the publication of that volume. I have in front of you, mm-hmm. um, but I'll put a link there. Was it any linkable stuff? And yeah, we'll, we'll figure it out in the DMs. Um, but until until the next time, we have our world cracked open by a poet <sighs> Rebecca. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you. Have a good one. <laughs>